So we do have quite a bit to cover today, and it's, uh, uh, it's the third round. So round three of the dialogues between Job's friends and Job. And this one is the, the first of round three, and that would be Eliphaz versus Job. And I think an appropriate theme is the idea of waiting for God. Waiting for God. And why I say it's about waiting for God is because there is this, this tendency in us to kind of narrow the focus of everything that God is doing simply to what I see in front of me and me alone. Whatever's on my heart, whatever I'm concerned about, whatever I have fears about, that's all I see. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not chiding that. that. That's natural for us. Part of our finiteness means that our minds do not carry everything and anything, right? All that swirls around us in the universe. God's mind is not our mind. Amen? That's a huge amen. Because what if he was like us, occasionally narrow-minded, forgetting to save some because he was busy with this rascal who is more difficult to save than others? Right? Well, what if God was more focused on one thing and forgetting other things? He never does. He juggles a billion things and billions of lives and souls at one time, and he controls an entire universe, and he does it without spilling a drop. That's the nature of who God is. But when finite creatures like us are trying to examine what is happening around us, it is natural for us to look at circumstances, to look at statistics, to look at what is happening here, to read what is, what is reported there, and to draw conclusions that may be limited in its scope. So it's a call for humility to wait upon God to reveal what He is doing and why He is doing that. Because what we'll see, uh, at least in Eliphaz's communication, he's not necessarily wrong. The, the, the overall... Um, um, outline will be Eliphaz calling Job to repent. And, and I'm not saying that he is right in calling Job to repent because Job, I think, doesn't have anything particular that he needs to repent of. And where Eliphaz goes wrong is he begins to interpret Job's circumstances. Right? This doesn't just happen to people. You've done something. And then now that's beginning to develop flesh and bones in Eliphaz's mind. Eliphaz has been the most kind of the three friends. Um, and, uh, and so it is, it is, I think this is kind of uh, the climax of his criticism and his accusations against Job. Where I'm saying he is not wrong is that he is correct. And when he says that if we would repent, then all things can be changed. That God is a forgiving God that he's willing to forgive us. All that is true and we can amen that again and again. He just seems to misapply circumstantial statistics to Job and assume that Job has tremendous sin, in fact, calls him out on specific sins, that there is no evidence that Job is committed. Well, Job's response to that, you would think, would be, dude, I am innocent. But Job doesn't even bother. He kind of goes more along the lines of, okay, thanks, Ellie. You know, I, let, let's get back to my, my struggle, my narrow-mindedness. My narrow-mindedness is, man, I, I just need God to be present so that I could present my case. Job longs for God's vindication of him, but I add the word absent because that's his emphasis on, his, on chapter 23, that God is just absent. He, he 
I can't find him. He won't let himself be known to me. All right? When I need vindication, he's not here. And then chapter 24, an unusual chapter because Job then begins to speak about all the un- injustice in the world. He had earlier stated that, that the unrighteous seemed to live pretty well, at least some of them. And this is him coming back to the fact that the unrighteous, they'll get absolutely right, um, um, judged eventually um, by the God who is holy and knows all things. So that's kind of giving you a brief flyover. And in the next like 35 minutes, we're going to cover all three chapters. And it will be, it will be a delight. <laughs> Eliphaz, he caused Job to repentance, right? This is chapter 22. Uh, I'll read the portions as we go, but we begin with the first 11 verses there. He says, your sin is obvious. That's point A, right? Starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. Pause right there and let's kind of unpack some of what he begins to speak of. Eliphaz begins by saying, listen, is there something that you do that is profitable to God that pleases him in the sense that it makes something good for God? In other words, does God need you to kind of add to his righteousness or to, to do something that makes him like more happy? His point is that God is not like us and he is so transcendent. He says he's, his point is, is you do not add anything to God. But if you sin against God, then God has to do something. He is distant. He is, you know, absolute. And as an absolute and distant God, your task is to fear him. Do you think that if you actually feared him, Job, and this is verse 4, that he would reprove, reprove you? Do you think that he would enter into judgment with you if you actually feared this God? So you see what I'm saying is Eliphaz is so narrow-minded in terms of this is what I see in your life, so this must mean you're a sinner. And because of that, the most gracious of the three friends, and in fact, do you guys realize by the time we get to chapter 42 and God says to uh, Eliphaz and his friends, he doesn't address the others by name. He says, Eliphaz and your friends, right? You have spoken wrongly of me. And you need to go to Job, and Job is going to pray for you and make sacrifice for you, and, and you will do this to make yourself right with me. And a couple of things that we know by the fact of the revelation already being, being uh, written down, by the time we get to the end of this story, the friends are rebuked for their knowledge of God. See, their narrow-mindedness of how God works, that is their sin. Some of the things that they're thinking are not wrong. Should the wicked be judged? Yes, because of who God is, not because I think they should be. Right? Is there an eternal hell to be paid for the price of sin? Yes, not because Nam thinks that that's a really good idea, but because that is the nature of who God is, and His holiness is not to be toyed with. 
See, my narrow focus, my narrow-mindedness can create a religious context that is so much more human than it is who God is. And Eliphaz is saying, listen, you just have to check the circumstances around you. But think how ridiculous this sounds if you just put it in a different, in, in a different context. You, you know what? People in South Florida, the evidence that they are sinners is God just killed a bunch of them and tore up all their land and property. Does that sound right to you? See, but you can imagine an individual who has usurped the authority and the context of who God is actually speaking as if they are God's herald on earth and in their narrow focus redistributing God's justice based on circumstances that happen around them. You know why that family lost their baby? I don't either, but I suspect something. Does that sound okay to you? But guys, if you are not careful, this is the temptation of every spiritually proud individual, every religionist, everyone that says that I am for God and His holiness, and I'll defend His right to do whatever He does, but my focus is so narrow that I am interpreting circumstances as His hand of judgment. We know, and we have the luxury of knowing, that from the very beginning, the open words in the book of Job, right, Declare Job to be upright and blameless, a man that fears God, right, and abstains from evil. God himself calls Job those things in chapter 1, over and over again in chapter 2, right, in front of Satan. It got, so there is no question about Job's character, unless you're seeing it from a narrowly perspective, well, what's his circumstances, why would God allow all this to happen? So he accuses Job, right? This reproof is happening. And verse 5 is kind of the, the coup d'etat. He says, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your inequities. How does he, how does he judge that? Well, there isn't his calamity abundant? And there seems to be no end of his suffering. So commensurately, equally, his sin must be that obvious. Your sin is so obvious, right? And you're just not admitting to it. And then he gives them very particulars about what he imagines Job's sins to be. Look at verses 6 through 9. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped them naked, stripped them naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. You see, his exact interpretation of what Job's sins must be is that you have taken advantage of those that are very susceptible. Right? You're an oppressor. You're an individual that has been aggressive about how you have uh, enriched yourself and you have treated the poor terribly. People are weary. You won't give them drink. They're hungry. You won't give them food, right? You have land and it seemed that you are circumstantially favored in the way that you live in this land. But widows, you send them away empty. The fatherless, you crush them. And that formula, right? Widows and orphans throughout scripture, God says constantly, I defend widows and orphans. I will make you a widow or an orphan. 
All right? If you crush those that are the most vulnerable. And in verse 19 and 20, I'm sorry, 10 and 11. Man, we almost speed warped through that, right? That was awesome. Verse 10 and 11 says, Therefore snares are all around you, sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. He gets his point across, and his point is simply that all of this is happening clearly because of your sin. He even draws out sins that he imagines that he is involved in, all of which is, uh, is patently false. But what else could explain all the calamity that God has brought in Job's life? Your sin's obvious, Job, and God sees your ways, verses 12 through 20. Is not God, verse 12, high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see. And he walks on the vault of heaven. In other words, God is so high, he's interpreting Job's understanding of God to be so far away that he doesn't see him. Now you get why he is saying this. Because Job keeps saying, where is God? Where is God? Why doesn't he show up so that I could present my case? And he's saying, man, you're treating God like he's so distant, but I'm telling you, he sees you. Verse 15, will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? He's like, dude, this isn't new, Job. You're taking an old path, acting like God doesn't see you, hiding your sin. Verse 16, they were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. He's saying God allowed some of them to flourish. I grant you that, but that was a temporary flourishing. And I don't want any of their wisdom. I don't want any of their counsel. Verse 19, the righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, Surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they have left, the fire has consumed. He's saying, see, there are wicked men, and Job, you are just joining them, pretending that God doesn't see, acting like you're innocent when you know you're guilty, and when you see all of that, when you recognize that God sees your ways, you should be standing here with us, the righteous. You should be standing here and rejoicing at the calamity and the fall of those that have gone before us. All right? He sees you. You're standing with sinners. We're standing with God. I, I know that the, the, the self-righteousness just bleeds off the pages for us as we read this. But guys, in all humility, we are absolutely capable of this. To be become myopic towards individuals, towards people, towards, towards, towards other fellow Christians. And we need to be mindful of that. You know, when we were studying through Romans and we're going through that entire section in Romans 14 about uh, liberty and Christian liberties, do you realize one of the strongest rebukes that we find there and in 1 Corinthians against, against our judgmentalism is that when we act against our fellow Christian brother or sister in ways that feel like judgment, that is like this narrow-minded kind of, you know, this is happening, you deserve this, or you're in sin, etc. When we do that, the strongest thing the Scripture says is, how can you treat him 
for whom Christ died, her for whom Christ died in such a manner. This isn't appropriate. So, so some of the things that Eliphaz is saying, minus the specifics of accusing Job of these particular sins, is it true that the ways of the wicked are seen by God and that God will ultimately judge them? This is true. Is it appropriate that he points out that sin abounds and that there's a righteous God, a holy God, and he's watching? Yes, that's appropriate. In fact, the next section, to repent and be blessed, all of that is true, but he is saying that to someone that's not guilty. That's the problem. Some of what he says is true, and and the most, the the best, deceptive, you know, um, wicked lie is usually couched, right, with some amount of truth. You guys remember that, that game, Boulder Dash? You guys know that game? I think it's Boulder Dash, right? Isn't that the name? Where, like, there's a word, some random word, my Theophilus. I made that up, that just, just so you know, right? And then, and then people just create definitions, and you try to trick other people to falling into your definition, right? The beauty of that, and the guys that were really good at that, are the guys that make really simple statements because right sometimes i do I have like four sentences and it's like man that's nam he's the only one be making like three four sentences for a word right they recognize you like ah you know that is me right but you're supposed to make something pithy and something that sounds that sounds true the danger for every person of faith is that we take things that are true and then we start to to kind of lean into things that sound true. And then all of a sudden, we have narrowly focused our ways to see things as we see them and assume that God sees them the same way. Repentance and be blessed is the last part of Eliphaz's, um, his, in a way, his, his gospel presentation sermon uh, to Job. And, and it's a pretty good one in terms of calling to repent and believe. Verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Um, agree is our word for submitting or acquiescing. It, it, we, we might, in our New Testament vocabulary, use the term confess. It would be to say that you are agreeing, you're saying your amen to the fact that God has seen your sin. And so you too want to agree with God, Lord, this is sin. Not because I think it's sin or because other people think it's sin, but because you say it's sin. And I want to agree with you that I'm a sinner. And by that confession, there's an opportunity, um, Eliphaz says, for peace. And that good can come to you because of that. That's verse 21. Verse 22, so far so good, right? He says, receive and lay hold of something that is excellent. He says, verse 22, receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Listen to what God says. Listen to the words of his mouth. Store up his truth in your heart. Believe it. Take hold of it. So not just confess it now, but now receive, lay hold of, hold it, believe the truth that you have been spoken, um, that, that has been spoken to you, the words of God himself. And listen, that's an excellent gospel call too, right? We would ask people not to just take my word for it. I, I, I often tell people if I'm sharing the gospel with them, like it's not an issue of my opinion, because then, then I'd have to be really smart for you to believe me. And I'm not that smart, Right? But you should believe me, not because of me. 
You should believe me because this is what God says. And that's an excellent way to approach this call for repentance. Right? Confess, agree, right? and receive the word that it might bear fruit. And then third, verse 23 and 24, if you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. This, this, uh, this third point is excellent. He uses that, that Hebrew term for if you return, right? And that is really the equivalent of our New Testament term for repent. He's saying, man, if you are going one direction and you'll turn yourself back around, if you'll return to the Almighty, you can be built up. You can be, you can be strengthened again. You can be strong and stand for yourself. If you remove injustice from your pen. So see, this is why the returning is a repenting, right? Listen to what he says. Put away your injustices. The injustices I just accused you of, even though you're not guilty of that. So in a general sense, this is a good call to repentance. But in a specific sense, it's kind of narrowly focused and incorrect. But he goes on to say, if you lay your gold in the dust, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and become your precious, precious silver. Um, Ophir, by the way, is, uh, uh, is, is a term that is a... Um, Metonymy? Do you guys know what a metonymy is? It's like when you use a single other word for what you mean. Like, like sometimes we, uh, we refer to business executive as suits. And what does he do for a living? Oh, he's a suit, right? Sorry, I, I don't know why I said it like that's a bad thing. So we have some executives here, and I didn't mean to go, he's a suit, like, like he's, he's judged. My, my narrow focus, I apologize. I mean, you know, like we, we sometimes use terms like that, right? We use uh, something to refer to something. The, the queen or of, of England or the king now of England, we might refer to royalty as the crown, right? That's a metonymy. And so Ophir is just another way of saying gold. He's saying, saying, Job, if you just lay aside your greed for gold, God will become your gold. Like, like from his perspective... This call for, for repentance is not a bad thing. He is saying, repent and find blessing. The blessing is in verses 26 through 30. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. That, that is a true and excellent thing. You will make your prayer, verse 27, to Him, and He will hear you. So one, you'll find that your delight will be in God and His presence. Verse 26, that's a tremendous blessing. Verse 27, you will make your prayers and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. Like, like you will communicate. You will promise to do something. You'll fulfill. You'll pray to Him and He will fulfill. Right? Verse 28, you will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. God will guide you. Verse 29, for when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but He saves the lowly. This is an incredibly difficult um, verse to understand um, in the Hebrew. When men are brought low, I think the idea is that you will say, right, be lifted up. So the term that is used here, it's a word, right, genad, which means um, to be proud, but literally it means to be lifted up. So in a positive sense, it could mean I exalt the Lord, right? 
I lift up my head. It could be used like that in, in a lot of the Psalms. But in a negative sense, it could, be, it could be said this way, that the wicked, they lift themselves, meaning that they are arrogant, that they are proud. And so you could translate this phrase either positively or negatively, and uh, the ESV has chosen to translate it negatively. But the NASB, the NIV, and the New King James all translate this positively. And so their translation says something like this, right? Um, verse 29. Sorry, I lost my verse 29. For when they are humbled, you say, NASV, you know, speak with confidence. That's what you're going to say to them. When they're humbled, when they're brought low, you're going to say to them, NIV, lift them up, right? When they're humbled and they're brought low, New King James Version, your exaltation will come. So, so it's a lifting up. And I think that's what he's saying, that if there is repentance, there will also be a lifting up. Things will get better. Job, this isn't the end of the line for you yet. You can turn the corner on this. There are some excellent ideas that are presented there, but that truth is unfortunately mingled with this falsehood, this problem that Job is not penitent, that Job is in sin, that Job is denying his sin, hiding his sin, even as he is suffering for it. And we shouldn't have mercy for him because he won't admit that he is a sinner and that all these things, he deserves it. You guys remember... Weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, the interesting thing in uh, the Jewish Talmud, which records a lot of the teachings of the old rabbis, um, there is a perspective among some of the old rabbis that Job indeed was a sinner. In other words, they would interpret that the things that Eliphaz is saying is probably true, right? That he is, he kind of leans towards sin. Remember, and then, and then the, the old tradition is that uh, in the time of Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh comes to Job and a few others as wise counselors and asks them what he should do about the problem of the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people being so abounding. And then um, either some tradition says Job is the one that suggested that you need, to, you need to decrease their population. Others say someone else said that, and Job kept silent and said, you know, maybe that's not a bad idea. And that's why all these calamities had taken place. What I find interesting is that there are teachers of the law that have thought that Job deserves this. When in fact, Scripture seems to affirm throughout the book of Job that he is upright, he is godly, he fears God and turns away from evil. That is said about him again and again and again, even by God himself. So either the testimony of God is not quite enough, or all of these individuals are so short-sighted that all they could see is their religious principle and not see that God is doing something in Job's life. And certainly Job doesn't know what it is that's eliphaz's call for repentance and we're gonna have to zip through this stuff but man it'll be a, a wonderful zipping i promise all right in chapter 23 job expresses his longing for god's vindication but a longing for god's vindication that seems to be so absent right it's interesting because in a way, Job doesn't even address the accusations of Eliphaz. He just kind of goes, man, I just, want, I just want to make my case before God, but man, where is he? And so he starts off in verses 1 through 9 by saying, I can't find him. Now this, right, 
I find it really interesting and comforting and challenging that I take Job to be a devoted and godly man. And the evidence of that is in the most bitter moment of his life when just maybe weeks ago, like all his children have died as they were celebrating. Right? All of his property has been stolen or destroyed. His body is breaking down and he's sitting outside the city because he can't live amongst normal people. He is abandoned, he's out in the cold, and he is slowly dying. And he knows and embraces the fact that Sheol, the grave, is about to swallow him whole. And in the midst of all of this, right, he is wondering what God is doing. But as he wonders what God is doing, the thing that seems to be heavy on his heart He said he's convinced that God is his friend. It is his absence that bothers him so much. I mean, I don't know. If I was in such turmoil and suffering, would would part of my focus and the flavor of my complaint be that God is so distant from me? Or would it be just, Lord, why is this happening? Take this away, right? Why is this happening? Fix my life. You owe me more than this. It's probably the more likely sinful um, complaint that would come out of my own soul. But here's Job saying, this is my complaint. This is why it's so heavy. God should be right here. Because I've always had him right here. He cannot be found. Verses 1 through 9. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. He's saying, if I could just find where he is enthroned, if I could just come to the seat of the master, of the king of the universe. He says, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would try to make a case that this kind of stuff shouldn't be happening to, to me. Verse 5, I would know that he would answer me and understand um, what he would say to me. I know that God would give me a response if I could just see him, if he was just here. Verse 6, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. That is a tremendous statement of faith. And you say, well, it doesn't sound much like a tremendous statement. Think about this. He's saying, man, if God showed up in all of his greatness, in all of his power, he could crush me. Would he do that? And he's saying, no. He would listen to me. Whatever else Job's faith understood about who God was, God was his friend. There was a relationship there. I know that God would affirm me by listening to me. I mention this frequently. Whenever scripture talks about listening, um, because it's a lesson that, that I, you know, feel like I'm constantly learning. But listening to someone is an affirmation of their importance. Some of you guys are terrible listeners. And um, that's, that's just true, right? Like, maybe you ask me something. <laughs> Gary, Gary and I talk about, like, uh, there's this dude in, um, that, that, you know, there's our classmate in seminary. He would ask the professor a question. And, while, and these professors are our friends, right? And while the professor is in the middle of answering, he would get up and he would leave the room to go use the restroom. And I'm just like, dude, like, you know, and, and to him, I don't think he meant it in, in any way to denigrate the, the professor or anything, but he's just kind of funny like that, right? 
And, um, but we're, a lot of us are just like that. We have stuff that we have to chase. We're thinking about other stuff. We're thinking about other things that we have to be doing, thinking about, talking about. And so as a result, you know, we just kind of get, uh-huh, uh-huh, and we're kind of drifting and stuff. And we don't recognize that that is, that, is a, that is not an affirmation of their value. That's the opposite of that. One of the most delightful things you could do for a child is just listen to their story. They want to tell you something, you just listen. And you go, oh, that's crazy. You're kind of crazy for telling me that. You could just give them that. But just the fact that you respond to it is an affirmation that they have value. This is Job affirming that I know I have value to God. Would he come at me with the greatness of his power? Would he swat me like a fly even though he could? No, he would pay attention to me. God affirms me. He always has. If I could just find him is, is what Job is saying. Verse 7, there, there an upright man could argue with him. And he doesn't mean like, like throw things and fight. He means they can make an, a logical argument. Lord, isn't this this? We could ask questions and get them answered. I would, and he says, I would be acquitted forever by my judge. I know that he, in the end, can acquit me. He, he, he could say that I am innocent. He could declare, he could vindicate me. And this is what Job desires, but it's couched in the sense that God needs to be there. And I can't find him. Verse 8 and 9, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. I go to the left, right, when he is working. I do not behold him. Um, he turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. And, and what... what Job is saying here is you just take the compass points, right? I'm going forward. And I, for them, I don't think they went north. I think they go east, which is weird, right? Like, shame on them, right? Everyone knows the compass points north. But, you know, the, you, know you go east, you go, you go forward, you go backwards, you go left, you go right. He's saying, I can look everywhere. I can't find God. And he's not saying that he's traveled the world. He's saying that no matter where I look, no matter what I think, okay, now, well, what are other ways for, for me to connect with God? Job has been trying them all. He just can't find God. God cannot be found in this moment of pain. He's not saying he's impossible to find because his expectation seems to be that as soon as he sees him again, that their relationship is reestablished. He just feels this amazingly distant hole, right? And he goes on to say, God knows my integrity, um, verses 10 through 12. He says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. This is where he's convinced, right? God knows. He would agree, right, with Eliphaz. Yes, God does know, and he knows my path. He knows my way. He knows how I have lived. And after he has tried me, he sees this as a trial that's meant to be temporary. He says, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. See, it's that reverse, right? That turning aside. Like we, we talk about living a life of sin and turning, right? So that we might turn back to God as repentance. But that same kind of turning metaphor can be used for I'm on the path of what is right and then I turn aside to my own ways, to my own wickedness. And he says, that, that's, that's not what I've done, and God knows it. Verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. He's saying, listen, you could take my food, but I have God's word to feed me. It's an amazing statement 
of the faith of his integrity. But, and the final part of this chapter, God is still God. And I have to drop that last part, right? Like, like I have to lower my voice and say, God is still God. Because this is what he says in verses 13 through 17. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. He, he recognizes his absolute sovereignty. And he goes on to say, for he will complete what he appoints for me. So he again recognizes that this is his portion. God has designed his life to be at this moment in this pain in front of these sorry counselors right here, right now. And money, and he says many such things are in his mind. God is, is working the universe and his life exactly where it's supposed to be at this moment. He recognizes that. Verse 15, therefore I am terrified in his presence when I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Why? Because he's saying, listen, for all that I just said, that I walk in integrity, that I love this God, that if he would just show up, I know that he would listen to me, not crush me. With all that being said, he is still God, and he gets to do as he pleases. His sovereignty is absolute, and his independence is not like my independence. My independence is that I have a car, and I get to drive from my house and go do stuff, right? You 16-year-olds trying to get your license, or most of you guys now get your license at 20-something for some reason, right? Whatever, right? Your independence. I have a job. I could buy my own stuff. No, mom, I'm going to buy this with my money because it's my money. I'm gonna, right? That's the way we think of independence. But when we speak of God's independence, we mean that nothing influences him. He does only what he wants, as he wants, when he wants to. Job affirms that absolutely. He affirms many things about God. That he cannot be altered, right? He's unchangeable. That he's absolute in power. That he does only as he desires. And he's, what is happening in my life is exactly what he has ordained. He says, because of that, I'm terrified in his presence. Because this is still going on. And how, who knows how long this will continue. God's made my heart faint, right? Verse 17, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. That, that, that is an excellent statement that he closes that, that chapter on. And what he seems to be saying is, I still can speak about who God is. I could still claim that if he would just show up, that we're friends again. I still know who I am and my value to him. But I also know that that doesn't determine what happens in the course of my life. He gets to do as he pleases, and it terrifies me because I don't know when this will end. Right? That is a difficulty um, of a terminal illness. That is a difficulty of a lifelong, you know, um, inability or struggle. That that is the, the difficulty of growing up in circumstances that that is a constant reminder of pain and difficulty or 
or of neglect or of abuse or so many wicked things that are part of this world. Like we have these things that will hang over us and will constantly narrow our vision. And Job is saying, when all is said and done, I know that he is my God. And I know that, that, that when I am narrowly focused on what is happening in this moment, it is terrible and it's hard for me. And it's just his confession and his honesty to say that, man, I wish God would just show up and either take my life, right, or restore things or vindicate me. But this is so hard in the moment. And my point is, it is okay for us in faith to express that this is so hard in the moment. This is true. And everyone in this room will suffer something like that. But if we're believers then there's a perspective that we look to God and that even if God delays, we know that he'll show up. And that's really where Job is headed next. Job longs for God's absent vindication and then his statement of trust in God's eventual justice. Verses 1 through 17. And we can read through this quickly because a lot of it is, uh, is just kind of a, a list of wickedness that abounds around um, the world in Job's time. He begins in verse 24, um, chapter 24, verse 1, by saying, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know Him never see His days? This is Him just crying out and saying, Lord, like, I just wish You would just show up and vindicate me. And this, is, this, this question is the bridge between that. You know, I can't find God. I know He knows my ways. And he is still God, and because he is sovereign, it terrifies me that I will still be in this moment. But my question is, why does God delay? God's justice is delayed. And he goes on to speak of some of those sinful things that, that, should, be, that should be judged quickly, but God has delayed in. Verse 2, some move landmarks, and they seize flocks and pasture them in a shepherd herding or sheep herding culture. That is a mess. You move landmarks so that now you have, like, you know, you took their wells, right? You, and, oh, you, those sheep are on this side of the fence. That means they're mine now, right? You collect their sheep and, and you take them away, right? Verse 3, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They're taking away the beast of burdens on the orphans and the widows again, the most vulnerable in society. They're taking their beast of burden. It's like stealing their car, Right? They thrust the poor off the road, the road where they might get some help. The poor of the earth all hide themselves, terrorizing them. Verse 5, Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They're hunting for food in the desert. Verse 6, They gather their fodder in the field. Fodder, for all of you city slickers is the food that you feed your animals. And they're trying to find it. They're trying to find it in the field. And they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They're dependent upon wicked people. Do you see the oppression that is, that is, that is all around Job? They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. That's dangerous. You guys watch those survivor shows? First thing you do, if you are, for some reason, the only survivor of an airplane crash somewhere in the mountains and you don't know where you are in the world right? You need shelter and fresh water. You can go a few days without food, but you got to start there and maybe start a fire to keep you warm, depending on how cold it is, right? Why? Because exposure can kill you. And he's saying that's what is happening to these poor. 
Those without clothing, verse 8, they are wet with the red rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. Let's just read through the rest of this in verse 17 because I'm taking too long. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves. Among the olive robes of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. They're, work, they're working for wicked people, but they get no pay. From out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with his ways, and do not stay in his paths. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face. In the dark, they dig through houses. That's how you rob houses back in those days. You don't break down the door. You dig through the wall. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. He's just saying, Lord, you know all the stuff that's going on. Not only is Job saying, you know my life, but you know all the junk that is happening in my city, all the junk that is happening in my state, in my country. You know all the sin that abounds around us, Lord, and it just seems like your justice is so delayed. How long, O Lord? You see the prophet saying that regularly. Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, will you allow wickedness to prosper? And then they list similar vices. How long, O Lord? That's Job's cry, right? I, I just find it remarkable that Job turns not just to, you know, to his own dilemma, but in talking about, you know, stealing from the poor and all that stuff, he doesn't even address it with Eliphaz, but he does address the idea that, yeah, that is true. There are people like that. And why is God delaying? And then God's judgment is inevitable. And that's uh, um, point B. Verse 18 through 25, you say, Swift are they on the face of the waters, meaning they are quick to go trade, but their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. No one... They don't have grapes to tread out wine. Verse 19, drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So the shield, those who have sinned, the womb forgets them. And the worm finds them sweet. The English does a good job in capturing words that are similar. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet, meaning you're in the grave and getting eaten by worms. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. They wrong the barren, childless woman. They do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported. And his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while and they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? He's saying that God drags away the mighty. He eventually comes in judgment. And the point is God's judgment is inevitable, that it will eventually come. And we may not see it in this day. We may not even see it in our lifetime. We may not find the deliverance from physical ailments and pains and relationships that we hope for in this lifetime. But God is still God. And in the end, His justice will reign. It reminds me of Psalm 73. Do you remember that great psalm of Asaph? When he says, I was, er I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was a good thing in those days, right? They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They wear their pride like necklaces. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out because of the goodness of their lives, their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice, right? They do all this wicked stuff against God. They say in verse 11 of Psalm 73, how can God know there's no knowledge in him? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, man, if I had said, okay, I'm just going to jump in and speak with them, right? I'll be like that. I would have betrayed this generation of your children. But verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me. It literally means I was oppressed by this thought. This is Job right now. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end there is an end and we may not see that just end yet but that end is absolutely certain right because there is a god and listen there is in the spirit of eliphaz and job there is a message that i think is that significant and that's what we celebrate in the lord's table now right that there is a creator god and he is almighty righteous all-knowing and holy And we are sinners. We reject his righteous rule over us. And as rebels, we deserve eternal death. But in his love for us, he has provided for us a perfect substitute, a sacrifice, 